You're listening to the Sound Girls podcast with Daria and Katie. Today's episode features an interview with production sound mixer Jan McLaughlin. Jan McLaughlin has worked as a production sound mixer for film and television since 1992. Currently retired, two Emmy statues adorn her kitchen shelf. Her final film project, The Many Saints of Newark, is scheduled for theatrical release in September of 2021. Welcome, Jen. Hello, Katie. Hello, Daria. Can we start at the beginning? Because your background is very interesting. You cover a lot of art disciplines. And I'd just like to hear about your roots. My roots? Well, my parents made me take dancing lessons and music lessons as a kid. And I did that from a very young age. My grandfather had a reel-to-reel wire recorder that I thought was magical. So I had that early inserted into my brain that you could record things and play them back. Oh my goodness. Being able to hear hear it later, that was the magic. So between the, the ear training from music and I later turned to poetry as a way to sort of survive, Um, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and poetry saved my life. Uh, It also put a huge gap in my career, since there came a time when I had to really focus on just healing. And so I took about a decade off of thinking about sound to figure that out. But poetry, being because I couldn't speak, I mean, the, the fact that I could actually say that phrase without collapsing, here is a testament to the work that that involved. So I didn't have to like think about it for 16 or 20 days before I was able to say that. And the poetry has served me well, too, if only to be able to pithily convey my distress to a first AD on the set or to an actor or director in the pinch, uh, I think, served the whole thing very well. Brevity, beauty, pain, all... (laughs) In the one five-word phrase, so yeah, the background was was all all very good in that respect. You found the the joys of recording and playing it back. How did it get more officialized in that regard? That you found your career where it did end up. Well, it had to do with being married. My ex-husband took a job in New York City, and we were then living in Florida where I was a a paralegal and mostly involved with real estate deals. And that was sort of a specialty of mine. The idea of moving states and learning a whole new state's real estate law in a job that I really didn't love. You know, I, at, at the time this happened, I was working for a major law firm in Miami and, uh, was making a, a butt ton of money doing it for the early 80s. $70,000 a year was a lot of cash back then, and so I was at the top of the field, but I didn't love it. And it, I mean, it was a great firm, and they gave a party for me when I was hired there. I had my own office and a secretary, and but I just wasn't happy. So I meditated for about four months. I was walking to work. When I landed in New York City, walking to work from the Upper West Side every day to Rockefeller Center, where I was doing paralegal work for a, an art house book publishing company, the meditation was 
basically five words that, that shifted, but basically had to do with what makes me happy. And at the same time, I'd started taking courses at NYU in the evenings in filmmaking because my ex-husband and I were doing poetry films at that point, and I realized I didn't know the language. So I went to learn film language, and that turned me on to the fact that 99% of the people wanted to be a DP in the class, and you know there were 50 of us in the class. And of course, we, by the end of it, we were doing sound, sync sound with it, and nobody wanted to do sound. Well, I wasn't afraid because as part of the development of my previous life, I had a band, right. and I was the gearhead in the band. I owned the gear. Until we got a sound mixer on the team, I was, you know, would mix it from the stage, which really sucked to perform and deal with the PA and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, was really glad once we got a sound man with us. When I made the switch from front of house stuff, I mean, it wasn't really a direct switch, but I'm like, ah, I'll do sound. That doesn't scare me. It's signal flow, you know. So that really kind of lit something in me. And during that four months, I'm like, I bet you I could make a living at this. So, you know, I made some cold calls and a gentleman by the name of Joel Holland, who was then working with the team of Bill Daly, production sound mixer Bill Daly, boom operator David Platt mm -hmm. and Joel Holland were the, the three guys who were doing Law and Order. They were just starting season two of Law and Order. And Joel said, come on down. Here's the address, seven o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm like, okay. So I show up. We had a rolling company move uh, somewhere mid-morning. And so I asked Joel, I said, so where's the bathroom? And he said, what, you didn't go before you came to work? And that was sort of my introduction. As And as a, I think those of us who do this are on some level masochists. And so that just lit a fire under my masochist. So, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. And so they let me, they didn't tell me to stop coming. I just kept coming. They gave me an invitation at the end of the night in the form of a call sheet. And I just kept showing up for four months. And then Bill, you know, I, I left because I got a creepy little freebie job on a short film for somebody. And Bill lent me a microphone and a couple other things. And I got my start. And was this mixing right away, Jen? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I actually did something before then, which was, I'm pretty sure I probably really screwed it up. But it was a, uh, they were shooting the Police Athletic League, PAL, uh, boxing tournaments. So they rented rented a Nagra, and I'd never seen a Nagra before. And so I'm, I'm futzing with this, trying to get the Zeppelin. I had no idea how to open it. And the camera operator saw that I wasn't getting anywhere, and he came over and sort of whispered in my ear and helped me get it going and how to turn it on. And, and every, I mean, boy, was I green. And I feel quite sure that the sound from that day sucked. <laughs> Can you cuss on this? I think so. Go nuts. <laughs> well, yeah, it was had to have been horrible. That was really my, my first time out in the field. They never <laughs> called me again. But they weren't paying me, so they deserved what they got. Exactly. <laughs> you get what you pay for. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. I like knowing that, you know, there was a, a rough gig in the beginning, rough gig or two. It's important to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they're... Later on, a, f a friend of mine from high school, and I'm, my high school stuff was in Pennsylvania, he called me to do a commercial. Lots of money. I'm like, oh, shit. So I had to rent then uh, 
Anagra Stereo Nagra were out in the woods, and there wasn't much going on really in the, in the thing. But I would I by then I knew how to turn it on and everything, and I I was pretty well comfortable with the machine. But the rental Nagra, it wouldn't turn off, or it in any case I had to keep it running once I got it going, right? Because I couldn't turn it on and off. So, I mean, my heart is bleeding right now, but I just kept rolling, you know, my God, I don't even know how, well, it ended up, he actually had me into the studio because they, it was a, it was a gorilla playing a violin in a tree, guy in a gorilla suit. Right. And he knew that I'd played viola in high school and he's like, you could do it because we looked for something that was in the public domain. And I'm like, da, 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 da like the practice thing that you do. Right. And I was in there probably three hours trying like 12 years after I had graduated high school, I hadn't had a hell of a fiddle in my hand since. And I'm like, I can't, I, I'm like, I'm telling you, Tom, I can't do this. And he's like, sure you can do it. It's easy. I'm like, so I'm sure they had to cut the three notes that I got correctly. And the next three notes. And yeah. My initial career was really uh, bleak. So how did you keep going with the bleak start? Well, you just keep going because I, I knew I'd, I mean, I wouldn't screw that up again. Right. <laughs> you right, <know>? I guess. <laughs> it isn't that you're not going to fail. It's that you just get, pick your, I dusted myself off and did it again. You know, well, it's got to get better. Aren't there new problems every single set, every, every time you show up? Oh, yes. That's the thing. So why quit? You'll just uh, tackle, live to see another day. <laughs> well, one, one of the things that got me through my later career was I had a boom operator who I adore, Brendan O'Brien. And we came up with this thing that it's 40% better than you think it is. So anytime I'd go, oh, Jesus, that sucked. He'd say, do you remember the 40% rule? I'm okay. 40%'s nice. I'm going to start saying that to myself. Oh, that would... Boost me incredibly. Well, it, it's the percentage is different from ev everybody. Right. You know, maybe yours, your self, my self criticism was big, so it was forty percent for me when I would listen to it later in a, you know, on speakers or something. I'm going like, huh. So it was, it's consistent whatever the percentage is. So you don't need to keep changing it. You say, yeah, okay, forty percent. That's significant. It's going to be fine. So I didn't need to keep beating myself up. When did you, like, like, I read that you had a lot of pride that basically meant that you went to mixing maybe sooner than you would have liked or thought, thought you should have over utility, over booming. So how did that, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, when I went into the union world after I got into the union, because you don't pop out of the sound mixer womb and, and go anywhere. Right. Uh, unless you're related to somebody, but uh, at least in New York, and that's changed because I had learned by making mistakes by myself. Because I didn't, I was so shy. I didn't really reach out to people. We didn't have the internet back then, even though I had worked with Joel and Bill and David for four months. It wasn't. I wasn't comfortable really calling them up and chatting because they were always working seventy, eighty-hour weeks. So, you know, I taught myself and then there came a, a time when I, I, I got into the union and that that's kind of an interesting story. I'm not a big rule player. 
So I had gotten kind of to the top of the independent film world, which still existed back then. And I was making really good money uh, for my kit rentals and stuff for the, for the time. And a director with whom I'd worked on a non-union movie was doing a union picture. And he wanted me with him. So I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but Martin Scorsese and his then wife, or maybe recent ex-wife Barbara Defina, were executive producing. And I, I suspect that they, one of those two went to Local 52 and made their case that, you know, look, my director, our director wants Jan. And it was, it happened to be at a time when the work balance in terms of uh, Local 52 members working, it must have been busy. In other words, that the union said that I could mix his union film on standby or something, which meant, you know, on this budget, I would normally have gotten a two-man team, but the deal was they'd have to have a standby person on the team. So I had ended up with a three-person team for my first union picture. In the interim, I had I had done a motion picture with executive producing a fellow by the name of uh, Richard Brick, who is now no longer with us, but he was a sound man earlier in his career and had graduated to being the film commissioner of New York City by this time. So I emailed Richard, and this is in the days when you could say such a thing. So I said, so Richard, who do I have to fuck to get into Local 52? <laughs> and I could say that to Richard because Richard, Richard came up to my cart one day and he started touching stuff. I said, Richard, touch another thing and I'll break your fucking hand. <laughs> Which is, you know, that was like back in those days, being a little tough, being able to say that with the boys kind of got you somewhere. Right. And that's how I dealt with being the only uterus on the set some days. And nobody messed with me. So, uh, you know, back in those days, it, it was a good thing. I don't think I would, that would pass <laughs> muster in today's thing. But anyway, Richard wrote back and said, hey, here's this labor lawyer out in L.A. who will tell you how to get into Local 52. And he did. He wrote me a three-page opinion letter, which is a big deal from a yeah. lawyer, saying basically Taft-Hartley, which was still in effect back then, if you work 31 days on a union job, you are presumed to be able to get in. And that basically after you get those days, you just call them up and say, swear me in. Well, this movie was 31 days. And as soon as, as soon as I'd had a good night's sleep, I called up the hall, and those guys had to know. I said, so guys, when do I get sworn in? Now, I'm sure that rubbed them wrong, because I, I didn't hear from the sort of most vocal guy there. I didn't hear from him till like 20 years later. He finally called me to congratulate me on an Emmy. Eventually, but, <laughs> he got around. <laughs> right. Well, he actually didn't call on the first one. He called after the second one. But anyway, so... You know, I didn't make myself available to them. I didn't go to meetings because I, I hear things like the, the meetings, guys would get in fisticuffs at local 52 meetings back Gosh. in the day. And I'm like, nah, I, I don't. And New York was a very tough room. And I just didn't want any part of that. That's not how I play. I could do it for pretend by cussing around them and stuff. But the reality was the, those guys scared the heck out of me. So in any case, yeah. So I got in local 52. But I wasn't getting any work. Nobody knew who I was. So after a couple of years of nothing, and you know that was sort of at the tail end of the healing work that I was doing, like, wow, what am I going to do? So I started, Matthew Price asked me to third for him a couple of days here and there when his third couldn't be there. And I guess I didn't screw it up. 
So when his regular third went on to found Gotham Sound, which is a great rental house in New York, Matthew invited me to stay, and that show was Sopranos. Wow. And that was my first show that I ever worked on. So then Matthew would eventually, he let me do some second unit stuff, which, you know, the terror was real. Yeah. <laughs> and then somebody else needed a, a third, and I filled in with that guy, and I thirded with him. And then by that time, I realized, you know, okay, so I did one show with the other guy, John McCormick, who's a really, really great guy. Best lesson from John was about loyalty. He taught me about loyalty, and that's a really good thing. So for the second show, I said, John, I'll come on and I'll third for you, but if they need a second unit, I'm not asking that you sing my praises or anything, but at least put my name in the hat. So that was the next step, and then thereafter, I started to be able to get mixing jobs. Yeah. How did you deal with terror that is real? How do you deal with that? Well, at first, I wasn't very good at it. And day ones were just, I can't even remember what they were because it was so painful. But it took many years for me to get to the point where I could say, look, you've done this before. And, you know, I would come outside myself and have the finger wagon speech. You've done this before. You'll do it again. It's going to be fine. Even if everything goes to hell, you'll be fine. Trust me. Trust yourself. It's very hard to listen to yourself when you say that, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. But practice that. It's all practice. And I had to practice it a few times unsuccessfully. Yeah. And I, I think what, what happened, too, there came a point where I had a dentist appointment. And I, I have such a fear of dentists that I make them give me Valium prescriptions. And I had an extra Valium left over. And I took that for day one. Had the best <laughs> day one ever. <laughs> But then would it ever, ever happen again that I happen to have leftover Valium from a dentist appointment? No. Uh -huh. So then I'm like, okay, you have to do it in here. And being able to play a PSYOP with yourself is a really good trick to learn. And meditation helps that Yeah. too. Part of the healing journey for me was meditating. And that has served me well a lot. And so I can play PSYOPs. Because getting through that whole morass of healing from childhood sexual abuse involved, really, I was able to apply in my sound world. So would you recommend that it's a frantic sort of workplace, right? I'm sure it's very fun, but it's also go, go, go. Lots of problems coming up, right? So you integrated that. And have you ever spoken to other production mixers who've kind of used similar tactics to, like, get through the day? No, hmm. not really. I mean, and I, I'm going to say, as a, not that I haven't had opportunities. I have had opportunities. What part of my giving back, as you, my way of giving to the sound community was to host, now it's Zoom, but it, originally it was whatever video conference software, you know, we, we've evolved through them. But for 10 years, a group of us would meet on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. and Sunday morning at 9 for however many hours. You know, sometimes three hours if it's during like some big like NAB or something when new equipment was coming out, we would go a very long time. But that's not something we talked about because it's mostly men. And I don't think all the things that I talked about with these guys for the 10 years that we, we did it and I stopped going this February was our 10 year anniversary. I kind of stopped going. I just sort of I had nothing to say. I'm like, I don't care about the gear anymore. I sold everything. You know, and I'm like, I don't even have a good microphone to be on this with you guys today. <laughs> it's my stupid little mic and my laptop. 
That sounds good. That's that's what you're using. Yeah. Oh, good. Because I have no idea. I can't hear myself, which is a real downer. <laughs> oh, excellent. Those guys, they we didn't talk about that kind of stuff among the fellas. And it was mostly men. In the last couple of years, Lauren Banjo, she started coming. She's really the only woman who graced our screens. Yeah, I can't talk with the guys about cooking either. So, so I suppose throughout all the years of your, your career, did you notice many more women coming in as you progressed or absolutely it's been a long slow (laughs) long slow fade in there were two or three women who were doing it when I got in but they were well advanced to me and I thought I was beneath their attention so Samantha Heilweil is one from whom I bought my Sheps microphones they were one of the first microphones I bought and a couple of other women who, who were mostly doing documentaries. And I disabused myself of enjoying documentary work early on. It's so much work. It's as much work to gear up to do a documentary in terms of hours as it is to do a, a long-form narrative thing. And then, and then you don't get paid for the rap day. You don't get paid for any of that. Nobody has the answers. You know, like, so what time code thing do you want? Well, we don't know. And it's like, oh, my God. It, it, it's, it was pulling teeth. It was so difficult. I'm like, man. So that's why I, that among other reasons, is why I gravitated to doing narrative work. Plus, having started on Law and & Order, and the other thing was with Johnny McCormick was a short-lived thing called Kidnapped, and then Sopranos, of course. I realized that was for me, because you, you'd do those same three or four days' worth over, over probably a week or more to prep, but then you're in for six months, and it and it's all on the truck. Moreover, once you need, start needing expendables, the production office will get them for you. And it's like, oh my God, I didn't have to go down, physically go down somewhere in the city to pick up expendables. I mean, which, you know, and it's a pain, pain in the neck. I want my free time to be mine. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's why I went narrative. So I, I suppose that was in part why I didn't pursue relationships with the women. But the women who were coming in in the last like five, six years, boy, it's real. It's kind of accelerated. The whole curve is going up very quickly and it's amazing. So, I mean, since it took so long, it seems, and it was basically, you must have been the only woman often. Do you have any stories about, you know, getting through as the only woman on set over all the years? <laughs> Oh, sure. <laughs> sure, there's a few. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the weirdly uncomfortable, it's not really a great story, but one of the most weirdly uncomfortable things I had to regularly do on The Sopranos was work at the Bada Bing, the strip club. And it was my job to play back the music for the servers to dance to. And as it happens, I could plug into their system, which was on the mezzanine level. So basically it was just a, a second floor, but open to the bar where, where the strippers poles were in the middle of the bar. So I had, I had a bird's eye view. Nobody even would look up there. So here I am all by my lonesome. And they often have lots of background men at the bar and just sort of watching the men watch, fascinating education in terms of, they really have no choice, cannot help themselves. They are desperately and sadly, at the mercy of the boob. So there's a story. And, uh, and then flash forward to the end of my career, 
The executive producer slash director queen was a woman who was not quite showrunner, but just sort of one step below the showrunner in terms of everything going on. She directed a lot of the episodes and would be there every day, even if she wasn't directing. So she was a big eye in the sky for it. Genial and wonderful woman, and I adore her. So one day we were by ourselves. She says, are you happy? And I uh, paused, just a short pause. I said, you mean beyond the impulse that I have to kick the DP in the nuts every day? (laughs) (laughs) So that meant to me that my filter was broken between my brain and my mouth. And it wasn't long thereafter that I, I retired. But you know what? The the look that she gave me, I wasn't wrong. I was not yeah. the only one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if you could read my lips, I feel quite sure. The important thing is you didn't actually kick him in, in the nuts. No, and I, you know, but see, I was going to figure out a way to do it if it wasn't literal. <laughs> and I thought, that's really dangerous that I would, because, you know, honestly, this guy, I've never had trouble with a DP in my entire career. This is the end of my career. And this guy, everything he said to me had a subtext, little lady, little lady. And I'm, get the fuck away from me. I don't need your help. Go away. It was just like, oh my God. And I couldn't, in like however many weeks we were on this thing, I could not turn it around. He was just getting in my way, wouldn't let me go in to rig the car for the stage you know, put the microphone in the car until he was absolutely finished lighting and they're walking first team. And I have no time to like make sure that it's properly placed or be able to hear if anything's rattling in the car or anything like that. It just, so I I tried everything I could to get around this. He just would screw me every time we did it. And we did a lot. I was like, I'm done. So there's a story. I didn't win that one. Usually I'm pretty good at, you know, skiing down the slalom, getting around the obstacles and stuff. Could not do it with this guy. And I, it might have been that I just, I, I feel like I lost my fight or something. Yeah. Like I had no, I don't know. Wow. Fired of navigating the politics. Yeah, well, it, I'll tell you what, it, it's tough. Yeah. That's the toughest part. And I see a lot of people coming in and I keep a lot of sound puppies. When Well, I kept a lot of sound puppies, what I call them, around. And, you know, it, and they're all at various stages in their development. Once I get it, a sound puppy graduates, gets in the union, and then comes to join me on set, how I describe it is that they are a sound puppy basically walks around with grenades with the pins out in their pockets. They have no clue how they could blow up a set because of this politics stuff. You know, I really smart people, but by golly, I'll give you a grenade story. Both My boom operator and my utility were on set. We were very close to shooting, and they had done a rehearsal, and I think someone was doing ring, ring, ring for the phone ringing. And so the question over the comms was, do you know who's saying ring, ring, ring? Because I didn't recognize the voice, because I wanted to ask them to just do ring, because there was something else going on that I wanted to hear. And so the third, thinking, ah, I've got initiative, they go to the first AD, and say, who's calling out ring, 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 or something. Whatever it was, there was some history about it with the first AD, and the first AD lost his shit because my third had gone up to them and asked that particular question at a bad time or something. 
but the third didn't know. But it put me in the first sights and blew up a grenade. Had no clue why. There was nothing that that person could know because we'd had three seasons together, this first AD and I. And there was a history, and for whatever reason, that was a match into the kerosene. So my best advice to you starting out is do not say anything. <laughs> Listen to the question. Do The question was, do you know who is saying? That was a yes or no. That's all I wanted to know because once I had the name, I could go. Because if it's important, because uh, I don't go on set unless it's important, because my guys really cover me well, and they're poets, diplomats, all of that stuff. God bless them. Honestly, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> it is. Oh, my gosh. I, I, if it was me, I'd be blowing up all over the place. I'd be blowing up all the grenades. Oh, well, just don't say anything. Honestly, the whole four months that I was on Law & Order, I didn't say, well, I, did, I didn't even know enough to ask a good question. Right. And it wasn't until after I had left to do that short film and I returned the gear that I borrowed that we said, let's go out and have a cocktail. And then, and only then, did I feel like, okay, now I've watched them for four months. I went out, did it, <laughs> fucked it up. So now I have questions. How long did it take from starting out for you to feeling like you, you're comfortable in your knowledge? Very yeah. long time. <laughs> Very well, long when, time. When did you start feeling like you can say things, basically? I can remember a moment. It was on a Nicole Kidman thing, that uh, you know, a low-budget thing. Her, God, God love her, she does... A production company does a couple uh, low-budget movies every year. Oh, is that the Family Fang? Yes. Yeah, so we start out where we must have been on location or something. Well, we were up upstate, sort of in the woods for at a main location. It was an old house in the middle of the woods for a day, and it, it's, it's sort of the end of the day. And the DP and the director were in the trailer talking. I'm like... I have a seat at the table. That was the, me talking to myself. I, said, I have a seat at the table. I went, marched right over there, knocked on the door, went in and got myself a shot of whiskey and drank with the DP and, and director. It's like, yeah, I have a seat at the table. And that was that was the moment. I loved what there's a moment and that it just clicks. Yeah, why why not me? You can't imagine the erectness with which I walked in that mobile home. I just like it, I was in the parking lot and it's like everybody was basically gone and I'm like wait a minute I could be in there never did it again but. <laughs> were they boring no no it was it was Jason Bateman and the DP was awesome too and then and then I think it went away for a while because I, I think I I scared myself with my courage right <laughs> it wasn't until after my first Emmy going back to Nurse Jackie for the season after the win. But I'm like, wait a second. And it was funny that the women on the cast were all basically sort of just, and my boom operator and my third were both going, hey, hey, building me up a little bit. And it was this, maybe, maybe it's, it felt like someone had, they were all adding salt to the water and I was just floating higher in the water. But after that, I felt like, wait, they're actually listening to what I have to say. Not that I have a lot to say, you know, I, I'm not saying anything unless it's a real big issue, but by God, they did. I'm like, wow. So it took a long, long time. damn time. So, so basically, uh, once you've won an Emmy, 
that's when you start believing that maybe you're good at this. Well, I really didn't though. That's the weird thing. I'm like, oh, they gave it to me because all those guys out there, they're like, we need tits. And they, you know, and I'm like, they gave it to me because I'm a girl for after the first one. And then after the second one, I'm like, well, maybe it wasn't only that, but I don't okay, know. So, so after your second. <laughs> Wow. Oh, there's no shot in hell for any of us. <laughs> no, yeah, it was. I was like, nah, they just wanted to make sure that they stopped giving it all to men. <laughs> but here's here's the thing, and I'm going to say this because I'm out of it now. And that is, yeah, I got Emmys, but this Cinema Audio Society, I was nominated, never won with those guys. And you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to say it out loud, but you know what? Yeah. That that kind of pissed me off. Yeah. So I wasn't, you know, among my peers, mm -hmm. the LA boys, never. Eh. Uh, I don't. That sounds ridiculous. I mean, your career, like it speaks for itself. So, like, where's well, the you know, the, right? the stuff that I do isn't that complicated, and that's a thing that I hope stops. I don't know whether it's because I don't know why that is that I wouldn't get a really technical thing uh golly neds there's a was it baby driver a woman mixer who was on it and it was really complex playback movie brilliant brilliant work i i think she she was recognized i never got a complex project to do so in that regard like how was your mixing approach if you think it wasn't complex it was about like just capturing the sound as good as you can like was there a different approach that you personally developed no i was just getting good good as good dialogue as the locations and all the other costumes and everything else allowed me to do i'm talking about you know the script it starts with a script you know and the fact that the, there was a very long shot in a car driving around and there was music as he's driving around that the whole the whole picture was synchronized to it was a very complex ballet between right. the action of the cars the camera moves and so there was music that had to be played back during all this driving that drove the camera movement and everything i mean it was it was complicated and they did that a bunch of times during the course of the movie so that's a complex thing regardless of the official recognition awards and, and such what's your personally proudest moment it was a moment with christopher walken two moments maybe walken has a long soliloquy during which he descends this beautiful staircase and i wired him just in case but i, I planted a microphone that i felt acoustically would get the whole thing beautifully because it the way this house was it just had an acoustic flavor that i had not it was unique and very beautiful. So after it was finished, it was beautiful, and I was right. And in the meantime, of course, Bateman sees everything. He was directing. Bateman, every time he'd go by the plant mic, he would he would brush against it, and I'd go, Bateman, because I knew it was him. But So I'm laughing and whatnot, and every time I'd have to go out and check it and make sure it was in place. But afterwards, I, I went upstairs to where Walken was, his green room, to remove the wire, and I said, ah, oh, Mr. Walken. I captured your performance just right. <laughs> and that was a real highlight for me. And then sort of the, the icing on that cake was after his last performance for the applause before they would, uh, we would applaud him out having finished project. 
he actually got tears in his eyes because oh. I was unwiring him at that moment too, and he 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 was tearful, and that kind of that was good. I, I love those. You know, the little things make it make it all worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Well, they do in television. Those kinds of moments are rare, unfortunately. Even cable. Sometimes on cable stuff, we've had similar moments. Uh, Stephen Wallum singing in a club, and Stephen Wallum has a brilliantly beautiful voice, and I got to record him live doing that, and it just. <laughs> But uh, that's rare for television, but independent films and stuff, moments like that happen fairly often. So beyond the set politics, there's like the nice interpersonal moments and like the performances you get to capture that I guess sometimes are just extra brilliant, I can yeah. imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That That is terrifically rewarding. But what, what it's done is... I have my own private performances as far for me. It's a very intimate thing. And I've talked to actors about this. To have a microphone on or around an actor and to have headphones there from the actor's perspective and from mine as well, this is like really, really intimate. And like, why would I go to a theater when I get every day I have these incredible artists giving me my own personal performance yeah nobody i'm the first year sure. you know that's true yeah it's beautiful yeah you're a poet jen <laughs> well I, there was another moment too anna devere smith uh, for whom i've done sound consulting over the years we did a lot of seasons on nurse jackie and there was a moment that i don't, I don't know exactly what it was but i went up to her and i said you're pinning the truth meters darling mm. i believed it she says what do you mean i said i believed every word you said and then thereafter, over a period of years, we would discuss the idea of truth meters, that sound people know when someone's lying really well. Right. <laughs> at, the, at, the, at one point, I think the Bush the Younger was present, and I said, you know what? That guy, there is not a truthful word comes out of that guy's mouth. He just, like, there was, there was no truth when he spoke. It, it, he just sounded like he was lying every time he had a press conference. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just a terrible <laughs> actor. Yeah. How's your uh, retirement treating you? What have you been up to? I'm really glad to be done with it. I, I, I had no more fight left in me. And uh, as it turns out, with, with COVID and whatnot, I would have needed a lot more fight. Uh, the, the timing couldn't have been better. Thank you, sound goddesses for that because uh, I was able to sell most of my stuff before it shut down, which is, so I'm feeling very blessed. There came a, a time probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or something where I said, because of that 10 year gap, like I got to settle down and really figure out the money for retirement. So I, I went all in and decided to get ambitious. And you know what, I'll tell you what, for women particularly, because as I thought about this today, I wasn't able to do it for myself. That outside lecture came in and said, I'm going to do it for my team. I'm going to get, I couldn't get ambitious or demand more money for me, but I'm like, okay, I want to keep my team. And having that team that you work with really, really well, and you don't even have to say anything. It just happens. So I got ambitious for the team. At the beginning, I called it a mother energy. I don't have kids, but I had to imagine 
the ferocity of the mother energy. And that was the meditation then, okay, mother energy. And it's, this was also around the same time as the Emmys. I rode that wave and, you know, I'd, I'd go to the UPM and I'd say, you know what, I want to be the highest paid sound mixer in New York. Are you going to help me? And it worked. Nice. Bravo, Jen. And that was my mother ferocity. And I got my guys, I got my guys kit rentals. I, I started asking for above contract for my hourly rate. I kicked physical ass in New York yes. City. <laughs> Hell yeah. You give me chills right now. That's Good. so excellent. Yeah. And I wish I wish I had learned that sooner, but you know, it was my own de- development as a as an unworthy person to to a person that was worthy and I I don't think that's unique to me because of whatever in my history I think a lot of women but setting goals you know setting the goal is the first step now how do I get there and the meditation and just thinking about it you really have to think about it and it took me probably a year to get from retirement is going to come and I'm I'm not ready because I knew I had this physical gap in my career I'm like okay you're going to have to get serious about it so that's, you know, as part of that, I got Sounds Good, and that's my logo and the clock there. And it's it's kind of, uh, it's a little nipple-esque, but that's my logo. Fine. That's good. Nipple-esque. <laughs> I, I've never said that out loud to anybody before. Only with you, Sound Girls. Thank you. <laughs> it's an honor. Homage to... Um... <laughs> There's... <laughs> It is bestie, but I like yeah. it. It's like a sun breast. Right? Yeah. So, but in in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm a real fan of the apostrophe, and that was a lot of fun for me. And it was a psyop that I orchestrated on people who would see my company name, knowing it sound is good. Very good. This is such a joy. Thank you so much, Jen. What a pleasure, you young women. You, you young lady with your post stuff, Katie, reach out to the production sound person. Early on in the thing, say, can I visit set? I just, you know, just so you see how they are and just spend a morning or a couple of hours. Seriously, if you open that door, you will not regret it. That's, I, I will take that to heart. I will do that. That's really, really good advice. Thank yeah. you. And then you'll be VIP on set. They will take care of you so well. Oh, oh my God. Are you kidding me? Go for it. There was a huge hole in production sound, and that was the post people were missing. And now the with the internet and stuff that we had the possibility and it I mean we're a team, right? Exactly. We really are from the beginning to the end. It's all of us for, for the sound, for the story. Exactly. Mwah. 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 Applications are now open for the Sound Girl Scholarships of 2021 and we have three different scholarships available. The Sound Girls Ethel Gabriel Scholarship, the Sound Girls Scholarships, and Leslie Ann Jones Scholarship. The deadline for all scholarship applications is July 30th at 12 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. The Sound Girls Board will review essays and will notify the winners via email in August. For more information, visit soundgirls.org soundgirls scholarships 2021. If you're looking for more to listen to, here's what our friends in the podcasting community have in store for you. Hi, everyone. This is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. Each episode, we talk with production sound mixers, boom ops, and other film industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location for TV shows, features, and independent films. Our past guests have worked on projects like HBO's Beep, 
the Netflix series House of Cards, Discovery's Naked and Afraid, and so much more. We do talk a little tech, but then we get into the stories of working behind the scenes on set. This is the Location Sound Podcast.